This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cameron Aslan, today we have a special edition of Bit of Culture where occasionally we do a, a, a deep dive into a subject with a person. And today's person I am really pleased to have is Paul Augustine, the co author of, I think, maybe the best book ever to come out of Malaysia, certainly the best social history, which is Just for the Love of It, popular music in Penang, 1930s to 1960s. It's a beautifully illustrated uh, and sonic experience. He's also the founder of the Penang House of Music, uh, a a museum up in Penang, which uh, I have not yet visited. And uh, and he is so much more that we're going to discover. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Wow, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I, uh, I have a special interest and special focus on the book that you produced with Adam Lockhead back in 2015, I think it was. It's James Lockhead. James, sorry, James Lockhead. Yeah. Let, let's just uh, try and give an impression. Penang from the 1930s to the 1960s was a vibrant cultural, social hub. Yes, it was because basically Penang, uh, the location of the island, you know, it's actually sort of a gateway for people coming into this part of the world. They had to pass Penang at that time and uh, to get to Singapore and maybe to other parts of Australia, Indonesia and all that. So that was, Penang was the start of it. So what happened was a lot of people came by and they brought along a lot of things. Some of them, some of them were actually merchants. Some were adventurers. Some were looking for, you know, looking for their pot of gold, uh, finding a new life. And some was some were running away maybe from authorities or wives or whatever, you know. But they just came, and with them, I think when they came, they brought along their their cultures, the traditions, and also their music, basically. So. It is like a hotbed of things. Everything was controlled into one. And if you look at Penang Island, if I if, if I may tell you this story, you know, it's like um, in Penang we have Malay Street, we have uh, like a uh, Little India, and we have got like Chulia Street or China Street. God, and this was where the people congregated, congregated in terms of like started their own villages and all that. So I always tell the story of uh, if you are a boy that was born in. India or China, and you walk the streets and you only hear Chinese music or Malay music. But you come to Penang, early 1900s, people go to work, come back, and then what do they do? They don't have television, they don't have social media. So what they do is they sit outside the houses after the meals and they start maybe singing songs of the motherland. So imagine yourself as just somebody walking down the streets. It's like listening to a radio without changing the channels, you know. You pass the street and you hear Indian music, and then you pass another street. It's Chinese, and then it's Malay, and it's you know Armenian, and it's everything. <laughs> mm. So all over. So I, I think I, you can you can yeah. still get a sense of that very much so in Georgetown. Yeah, you can still not feel even, yeah the the proximity not, of everybody. It's a, it's a small place, really. Not not only Georgetown. I remember growing up in the 60s, 70s, even the 80s. I was staying in the house. And my neighbor on the right was Chinese family, and there would be Chinese music. And on the left was a Malay family, and there was Malay music. And at the back, we had an Indian family. And you, you just grow up like, you know, subconsciously, you're picking up all these sounds mm-hmm. that makes you Malaysia. 
basically. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. You know? And yet, though, in the book, you are describing, I guess, Western Anglo-American yes. sounds, which which yeah. are then picked up by Penangites and played by Penangites. So I don't know if it's just a case that you wanted to concentrate on that, or, or was that like a dominant sound, uh, perhaps a connector between all these different sounds that you've been talking about? Sort of. Actually, basically, the reason why we did the book uh, was because of two exhibitions that we curated. If going beyond that was because we had a, a sort of competition called the Jimmy Ball Young Talent Jazz Competition. And we realized the young people did not know who Jimmy Ball was. So that, that started the ball rolling, basically, you know, and understanding the people and the music. And I was a musician. And what I really wanted to do was that keep the stories of these people alive. I used to listen to these people and some of them I know. I've met them and some of them I even played with them. And they were really, really good musicians. And, and it was said that their stories are not known. Nobody knows these people. And you know, for your life as a musician, your whole life, you're honing your skill to be a musician and you're practicing and playing and practicing and playing. And, and when you're gone, after many years, nobody knows who you are. So I felt that it was a shame. You need to, to keep the memory of these people and the contribution of music, the music of these people alive. Yeah. Well, let's look at legacy uh, a little bit later. Let's, uh, if, we, if I may, if we can start with the, the, the time when it was at its most vibrant. I mean, the, the pictures in the book certainly give the impression that everybody was doing the twist in the street in Georgetown. <laughs> and... Uh, we have the, the pre-war, pre-Second World War sound, which is kind of the big band sound uh, with the jazz singer, yeah. often female. And that, that was the kind of, it had the image that, that you know, one saw in Hollywood movies of that time. It seemed very glamorous. But the life of a musician is actually not glamorous at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so, so they would have been playing to a European audience, I guess. Yeah, a lot of it, you know. And uh, after the war, the Second World War, we still had the communist problem on the mainland. So Penang was sort of like an R&R center. And you had all the soldiers, the Commonwealth soldiers that were here, they came here and they it's sort of like, uh, they had parties, they had socials, and they needed music. So you got these young people and the, the musicians at that time, they picked up their skills from the movies. And that's why you got the big band thing. You know, the way they, they play the music is very much big band and all that. So in the 50s, it was basically the ships would come in and then they would have all these records and, you know, because you get it cheap. We were a tax-free port at that time. And some of the people would buy the records and play themselves and learn the songs. Some would be bought and given to these musicians and say, hey, why don't you learn this song? You know, it's a very nice song. And then they had the social dances and they put the bands together. A lot of them did not read music. They, it was just by ear. You see? So, yes, that's why you equate the music to the movies. The movies was a channel for promotion of music. At that time, you didn't have television. So you're looking at 50s movies, and it was all the Bing Crosby's and Frank Sinatra's and, you know, all, and, and very much jazz. Jazz was pop music at that time. You know, the big yeah, band the, was pop music. The, the crooner, yeah. the, the Nat King yeah, Cole. Yeah, the crooner star, yeah. Yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah. Fa my father was, I think with Nat King Cole, my father and many Malayans really yeah. uh, 
loved Autumn Leaves, the song Autumn Leaves and Nat King <laughs> oh, yeah. Cole, because, you know, he looked kind of, well, you know, Malay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but if, but if we jump now to the 50s and you're talking about how the movies were the great influence and stuff, um, mm. can, I, can, I, can I make uh, a theory, which is for the, the music mm-hmm. that you describe of the 60s, you had, you know, Elvis was huge and... A little bit later, we have the Beatles, but I think perhaps the most influential sound was Cliff Richard and the Shadows, his backing right. band, the guitar band, the Shadows. Yeah, yeah, it's actually very true because uh, when we did the book, we had uh, I, I interviewed a lot of the the older guys and and we had fun and I would sit down and talk to them. And one of the guys, Achai, uh, Greg, he told me when he was growing up in Penang in the sixties and he listen to all his bands and he said if you didn't play music you could hear everybody playing it was a sin it was a sin not to play music and some of the a lot of the musicians mentioned that they were actually very influenced by hang marvin mm. you know for his shadow style of guitar playing and all that you know when they heard apache or you know song from team lovers and all that it was like wow and amazingly in certain part of the early 60s, a lot of them played music. There was no singing. Mm. And, they, and then they, I asked them, I said, who was the singer? Oh, we didn't sing. We just played music for the whole night. People would dance. I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know? mm. How do you do that? You know? And then after that, they started listening to Elvis. And then, of course, you got Elvis. Every country, every city, every town had an Elvis at that time. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know? But... Um, uh, then after that, they moved on to the Beatles and they did the harmonies and all that kind of stuff started creeping in, you know. Electric guitar only came in, I think, in the early 60s into Penang. Right. Yeah. 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 And can I ask, what was the kind of racial breakdown of these bands and, in, and indeed also the gender breakdown? These were men, young men, predominantly. Yeah. And, and what, Malay, Chinese, Indian, what, what, what kind of people are we talking about? As far as I know, basically they were the ones that we looked at was actually in the early part was a lot of the Chinese, the Eurasians, um, and then the Malays, the Malays, not so much of the Indians. I think the Indians later on, they came in, you know, Uh, but as when we were doing the research that we found out and then later we found out that the Indians actually came in, but a lot of them, I think, came from Goa and the British in the okay, I have to go back a bit. In the British in the mid mid, I think eighteen hundreds, nineteenth century, they they brought in all these musicians because we had musicians in Malaysia in Penang, but they could not read music. So for formal occasions, you needed to bring in uh, musicians who could read music and play music, you know, accordingly. And they brought in musicians from India, from Pakistan, from Philippines. Like, for example, from the Philippines, they brought in 64 musicians from the constabulary. You know, they imported these guys, 64 of them. They were on a two-year contract. And after the two-year contract, they were given the opportunity to either stay or go back. 62 of them stayed back in Singapore and Malaya. And that's where you get all the Solianos, the Guazos, the uh, Franciscos, the Valingis. They actually came to play music and they stayed and... They continued playing music until today. <laughs> you get a lot so of them. They became the, the Filipino. Sorry. The Filipino influence is very strong. It's it's important. Yes. 
Yes, you know, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the, the, uh, they, they played for the municipal bands and then eventually they became school teachers, music teachers, you know, piano teachers, and they, they form orchestras. They were in charge of school orchestras itself. So we've got photos of that. The, for us, the, the thing that's not the history of the, the music and the research for it does not stop with the book. Actually, it's sort of like elevated us and kicked us into higher gear to find out more. You know? mm, so mm. and since then we've we've learned so much more you know right There's yeah so much more to learn yes no because because that filipino influence uh it was mentioned i think in the book but it wasn't really yeah uh, no, not highlighted it wasn't very yeah. a, a big a big portion of it yeah. but it was in the book yes and i think also it's something that just malaysians who have a have a care for for the history of music in this country understand that you know the filipinos are so important yes they are yeah but can i pick a moment in time let's say around 1960 we've in in penang and by the way your book is the penang music scene but really it's northern malaya it, it, it yeah it, no the, the the one thing that we found out was when we did the book and we sold the book and there was one guy who came for a talk when we were doing the talk about the book and from johor and she says that oh this could easily fit into what job what was happening in johor and even somebody in italy I gave a book to a friend of mine who helped me with the research of the book, and his wife said, this book fits into Italy in our town. You know, it's actually basically mm -hmm. what the people were doing. So it was it was not only in Penang, it was all over, but it's just that our focus on the musicians, the names itself, the people, the personalities were Penang. Yeah. But this was happening throughout the world. <laughs> it was yeah. amazing. Well, that that's, that's what I wanted to get to now, which is that uh, the, the Penang that you've described sounds a lot like the port city of Liverpool uh, in the uh, early 1960s, late 1950s. And yeah. so uh, you then had, say, around 1963, 64, the arrival and explosion of the Beatles. Now, I love the Beatles, and I tend to think in terms of, like, you know, mankind, humankind, actually sort of began <laughs> around then. You know, everything else is prehistory. So I... I but perhaps I, I exaggerate, but I'm wondering, we have this this phenomena in in Malaysian music, pop yeah yeah, the yeah yeah, yeah being from she loves you yeah yeah yeah, yes, that's and right. it, it it's um it's the Beatles were important they they had uh, an impact, of course they did you know they were the Beatles were very big in Malaysia and. Uh, there were even competitions at that time in the 60s they had this thing called talent time talent time competitions and it was like the the elvis of malaysia the cliff richard of malaysia and you had the beatles of malaysia as well and Be beatles were a big influence you know a lot of the bands were playing the beatles music and all that kind of stuff um if if you look back between the 50s and the 60s as you are moving from the 50s 50s was when the musicians basically we're told what to play you know i got this record i'm going to have this dance and we go to dance i need this song and this song and the 60s with the explosion of uh, all these bands elvis presley uh, beatles the musicians suddenly everybody wanted to play music and suddenly they took on they said i want to play this you listen to me you know the whole world changed you know in terms of dressing in terms of the way they look, the hairstyle, 
the way they walk, the way they talk, and even the way they think, it started to change. In the in the fifties, it was just like okay, play this song. We're going to have this waltz, and then we're going to do this cha cha, and then we're going to do this rumba, you know, and foxtrot or whatever. But in the sixties, suddenly this whole world opened up. Suddenly, like music, wow, you know, everybody, everybody wanted to be like the Beatles. Everybody wanted to be like Cliff Richard, Elvis, The Shadows, and listen to me, you know. It's now come listen to me, you know. Before that was like I will play what you want. Well, I, I want to really talk about the the musicians themselves here because like when the Beatles began, they there they were from Liverpool. You know what what the yeah. hell is Liverpool? But they actually did think that they they did want to be the kings of the world. They they thought they yeah. really could do something. So when young kids in in Penang in Malaya, Malaysia started a band, were they thinking? What were they thinking? What was their the future plan that they were thinking? We're going to dominate. We're going to rule the world, or we're going to play a few gigs for eighteen months and then go get a job in a bank? What what kind of <laughs> What kind of dream was they, there? They they just wanted to play music like the the title of the book, which is just for the love of it. It was just for the love of it. It was, I think there was some that could be even myself. I would think that you know I want to be great. I want to play in a huge you know concert in a stadium and all the kind of things. But I think mean, you have to have the dreams to try and achieve them, and all of them did that. You know, all of them. I think, but. They know that realistically they can't do it, you know. After a certain time, they they stop playing, and they said, "Okay, it's a hobby. That's it." And in the in the fifties, it was more of a hobby. They all had day jobs, most of them, and nighttime they would play music. So in the sixties, yes, you had bigger dreams. I want to do this. I want to do that. The world was opening up. People could travel to the U.S., to Australia, to Europe, you know, to have a chance to do a different things. And I think some of them held on to their dreams, and they continued, but some did not. You know, it was everybody was playing music, but you know, you, if you you look at percentage wise, maybe only a small percentage really continued doing it. You know, yeah. and and if you have enough places to play, the the thing about it's reality. If you're a musician, you need to get a job, you need to survive. So where do you play? What do you play? There are not enough places in in Penang itself, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of tough. I I I was lucky that I had 15 years and I always had a job, so I was lucky, you know, playing in a band or playing solo or with a duet or whatever it was, you know, well, that kind of thing. Let's in a moment in part two uh, talk about uh, some individual bands, but also about your own particular musical journey and where it has been and where it's going to go <laughs> here on <laughs> a, a Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, and Paul Augustine, and we're talking about, uh, well, the music scene of Penang from the 1930s to the 1960s and beyond. And uh, so, Paul, I'd like to ask... We've just been talking in the abstract about bands in the 60s, etc. Are there any particular individual bands uh, or singers that you 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 would like to note as being, if not brilliantly fantastic, but at least some, some sort of like representative of their time? Oh, yeah. You know, in the 60s, 70s, and I think during the period of time, I think for me, the some bands that really stood out from Penang was, of course, the Alley Cats, you know, and then Sweet September. And there was a band that I really liked was Brownwood, which my cousin was in. I used to follow them. What, what kind of sound? What the, kind of sound was uh, Brownwood? 
rock, rock, man. <laughs> they were rock. Yeah. They were into rock, you know, purple stuff, you know, at the time, the purple Three Dog Night, uh, the Uriah Heap, that mm. kind of stuff was coming up. So I was I was hearing things about uh, these names that I've never heard, you know, Jetro Tal and all this kind of wow, you know. Yeah. And I think uh, in other parts of Malaysia, the bands that I really liked were actually the Hunters, the Hunters, the Falcons. The Falcons were a really, really good group. I liked them a lot. And of course the strollers as well. And there were there were also there were also the Green Preachers, the Ash Wednesday, um, and many more. You know, off the top of my head I can't I can't think of well, you, but was, you've mentioned a whole load of bands that I, I kind of like think I've heard of the Falcons and then yeah. the others are like, Wow, I've never heard of them. Uh yeah, there was there was another band called Mushroom Ellis, you know, wow, <laughs> what a name. <laughs> <laughs> and they were playing yeah. just in pubs and and clubs, yeah. Pubs and clubs. Okay, what what is interesting is that they used to have concerts of the local bands. And these bands would sell out. Mm-hmm. I went to see the Falcons in the school hall and it was sold out. It was like, wow. And I saw like uh, October Cherries. And I think in the 80s, there was also Carefree, Discovery, the band, you know. These other bands, they commanded it's not only about the music, it's the image of the band and the person in the band. You know, it's like a, with the Rolling Stones, you had Mick Jagger, and then with the Beatles, you had individual guys, you know, Paul McCartney, John Lennon. So people are sometimes attracted to the person itself, the image of the person, and then the music. It's just, just that, the whole thing. It's not, you can't just zoom in on one thing. It's the whole package. Obviously, Malaysia is not on the touring trail. You know, the Rolling Stones did not regularly come here and the Beatles never no. came here and and live music is um it's a thing that people want to experience yeah so maybe this this uh lookalikes or this tribute dance or whatever help to make the empty space a bit more fuller uh, they filled up the void yeah you know that I, if i can't see the real thing then maybe the closest to a real thing something like that you know well let's have a look then at your particular musical journey because you're, you're a young man i mean we've been talking about the 1960s but you were you were not there <laughs> um and then uh, you the influences you're talking about are rock from the 70s uh what possessed you to pick up an instrument and think i want to be in a band oh uh, i grew up in the 60s so in, in terms of music i had quite a musical family my mom would sing, my cousins would, would play music and they could all sing and they could, and one of them was in the band and I followed the band. And I think in the early 70s, I was what you would call a plug sticker. You know, you would follow the band, you were a young boy and they would say, hey man, stick that plug inside there, you know, for the amplifier. So I was a plug sticker. <laughs> and then when the guys go off to have some to drink or to eat and all that and I'm the guy that hey look after the instruments man so I was just glad to be around the band I didn't care you know it was if I have to look after I would sit there in, in the instruments and I was like wow you know I'm I'm like part of the band but you're not you see? Mm. but you just feel like and the band knows my name the guys know my name you know it's like wow so later on I started learning the guitar I picked up the guitar and then uh, of course you hang out with friends and you you think oh I want to be in a band and nobody in the guys that I knew who played the guitar wanted to play bass. Everybody wanted to be the lead guitarist. You know, it was the most glamorous thing, you know. 
or the singer. And then so I said, okay, then I'll, I'll learn how to play the bass. And that's how I picked it up and I became a bass player. <laughs> yeah. Paul McCartney, yeah. Sting, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you All know. bass players. Yeah. And and so you're, you were playing and gigging, what kind of time were we talking about? 19... Mid-1970s, I was in school. I was still in school and I remember... I had a gig where I had the exams in the morning and it was a Malay paper that was during the MCE and I was gigging at night for Miss some factory, you know, Miss uh, competition, you know, and I started playing part-time. I was doing it part-time, I was not doing it full-time. And when I started working in 1978, 77, 78, at that time there was this thing about pubs everybody there was a lot of pubs in Penang so you had pub singers pub singers was just this one man with a guitar or playing a keyboard and just singing you know what you would call singer songwriters now we were called pub singers at that time <laughs> so a friend of mine couldn't play that night and he called me and said would you sub for me you know could you come and play the whole night for me and I was very scared I remember because my dad was sitting there and I was by the phone. We didn't have handphones at that time. It was no, a house phone. Yeah. And then I picked up the phone and he asked me and I said, okay. And I looked at my dad and I was like, oh no, he's going to scold me or he's not going to allow me to do this, you know? So, but anyway, I spoke to him. I said, I, I'm going to sub for this guy. And he said, yeah, go ahead. So I went and I played one guitar, acoustic guitar for the whole night and had a songbook and I had to run through some songs and just play any song, you know, just play for the whole night. And that sort of like started me and I realized that, oh man, I can get paid for doing this. You know, I was making about like 150 a month, 150 every night that, from 9 to 12 or 1 o'clock. That, that was good, good money. Good money. Yeah. Yeah. I got two questions though. One yeah. is, did you pass that exam that you... Uh, that you... <laughs> <laughs> okay. My answer to that, Ken, my answer to that is that I did not, but because <laughs> I did so well, oh. they asked me to sit again for the second year, and I passed okay. <laughs> the second time. All right, so okay, the thing is, kids time. don't try this at home. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 don't. Please don't. don't. Yeah, and also, uh, the audiences that you were playing to, who who were they? Oh, uh, uh, I played in many, many different places, pubs. There was sometimes a Chinese joint. You know, and it was like uh, a Chinese, I had to beg a Chinese singer and just one guitar. And this guy would come on stage and he never, we never practiced. And he would just call out the song, which I don't know. And he would say, okay, D, he'll tell me the key of the song. And he'll start singing the song. And he'll put the rhythm machine. And I would just have to like, hey man, where is he going? And I have to listen. So you learn, listen, use your ears a lot. And. And you're playing After a Hong a Kong. You're playing a Hong Kong pop song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've you've never heard pop, before. <laughs> never heard before, you know. And he just he just starts singing by himself, and I'm like, oh man, I'm trying to find out. And then after you get the hang of it, he comes tomorrow. He say the key, the song is the key of D, and then he comes tomorrow and says, hey man, today my voice feels so much better. Can we change it to E flat? I want to do an E flat. And it's like, man, you got to shift the key down. <laughs> I'm not musically trained, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, but certainly your, your, your ideas, you know, you have to open up your mind and then start doing things that you never did before. But yeah. that was, that was the school, you know, that was the school of reality. 
Yeah. Did you ever get to listen to the originals of those songs? Did you ever find out actually what the song sounded like and what the the musical no, company? No, no. I, <laughs> I never did. But what 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 would happen is that I would hear a song. Hey, I know that song. <laughs> you hear it somewhere in some coffee shop, or you know, you're walking down the street, or somebody's house is. Hey, I know that song. I played that song. You know. <laughs> I would so, not look for it. Yeah. So um. I think uh, you know. I came. I came back to Malaysia. I, 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 I'm going to say. I guess I'm a little bit younger than you. Uh, I came back to Malaysia in the 1990s, and there was still a very strong pub uh, scene. I wouldn't say club, but a pub scene for singers, bands, yeah. uh, almost entirely rock. And there, there were fellows who'd been doing it for a long time. Um, but I'm going to guess that there was a, a time when it was a bigger scene, and. Okay. And, a, and also a time when that scene kind of collapsed. Yes. Uh, I think in the 60s, 70s was a nice scene. You know, it, they had a lot of, a lot of hotels have clubs and uh, people would have clubs and you had bands playing there, four-piece bands, five-piece bands, even uh, six, even horn section, bands with Ooh. horn sections and all that. Wow. In the 70s and 80s, it was just booming and everybody was just having fun. You know, playing music. It was not about uh, anything. I think we were more relaxed at that time. The people were more relaxed. Music was open. People liked it. They just, just did it. There was no hang-ups. No hang-ups. You know, they were not trying to prove. They just wanted to play music. And and the beauty was that it, there was no such thing as a, a racial thing. It was if you could play. Yeah, I didn't care who you were. You know, hey man, can you play? That, that was it. And we would just form a band the scene was english language yeah a lot of it was english you know english yeah. so i think was that's there, where the money was so yeah. there was that there was there a parallel chinese language scene that oh you know, yes that yes. you occasionally yes, of course. paid accompaniment to yeah yes of course in the, the the okay one thing i tell people is that as a band when we were growing up we played in a band and you would play in in kampongs mm. you know in malay kampongs or Chinese joints or Chinese wedding, and you would get this uncle that comes up to you and say, hey, can you play a choget, man? You know, I like to play a choget. And one of the guys would just like, oh, okay, you know, I know the melody of this. And he'll play. And the rest of us, because of, of us growing up in Penang, you remember I mentioned about the radios blaring from all the, you sort of like pick it up and say, oh, yeah, I know that tune. You know, and you just pick it up and one guy leads and the others all follow. It's the same with the Chinese songs, you know, and one auntie or uncle will come and say, you know, I want to sing this song and, you know, and we'll say, okay, you sing and we'll follow you. And the moment they start, and oh yeah, we know that song, or at least we know part of the song, you know, so the band will just like follow. And it, it's it's quite, it's quite amazing. Now I think back at it, I will tell you one thing that happened in 1984. I was playing with a band in Hotel Holiday Inn and uh, we, we had a gig, there was three of us. And the Marines were in town and they came. The U.S. The Marines. They were all over the U.S. Marines. Hmm. And one night, one of the guys came out and says, hey, man, we got this guy, you know, sergeant or captain or pastor or something, you know. And anyway, can he come and play with the band? And we say, yeah, sure. You know, he played guitar. So he played guitar. I played bass. And there was another guy, Frank, who played guitar. He called out the song. And the first song he called out was Stormy Monday. I remember that. And I said, okay, yeah, I know we said, we know the song. Okay, what key? And we played. And then he called out Tequila Sunrise and he called out Lying Eyes from the Eagles and all this song. And every song he called out, we played. And he turned to us and said, 
man, you guys are amazing. And then we told him, not only do we play the songs, we also play Indian, Chinese, Malay. <laughs> <laughs> and, the and he freaked out. He said, I don't know where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to guess the level of musicianship was quite high then. Oh, yeah. You know, you had to... You had to be different or good or at least be adaptable to a lot of situations to play at that time, you know. And, and it was like a competition, like, you know, I want to play in this hotel and, you know, you work yourself up to be there. And then you, I want to go to Kuala Lumpur and play. And, uh, you know, you have to have a certain level of musicianship. To, mm. you, have, you, you strive for it, you know. I was not fantastic or what, but I could just play. You know, hmm. like adapt. You know, you ask me to play country, I'll play country. You ask me to play Chinese, I'll play Chinese. I, I just wanted work. I just wanted to survive. Paul, can we end up with? Uh, I just want to ask you about um, the Penang House of Music, the the museum yeah. that you've been that you co-found, you founded or co-founded, and that you have co-founded, been yeah. co-founded, and you have been assembling. What artifacts do we find? Have you found and put in your museum? Okay, we've got a 6,800 square feet museum. We didn't want to call it a museum at the start because, you know, they have other things which, like main museums, which I do not agree with. Uh, And it's been not used in the proper context. So we call ourselves the Penang House of Music, but we are a museum. For me, a museum is of a certain level and we have to attain that and work to, to attain that. And I think we are on the right track. So uh, what we have, when we started this, we knew we had, we had three things. One was a black box, a black box that we could sit about 100 people and people could play music. We had talks, we had workshops. Before the pandemic, we had a lot of events. We had nearly one event a week, you know. Uh, and then we have a gallery space, which actually tells the story of Penang from the 1930s. As you come up and you go through, you go through the cultural experience before the war, after the war and in the 1960s. And also we give you the experience of interactiveness, meaning that you could, whatever is on display, you can touch. There are instruments, we have VR, we have AR. You could even be a DJ, you know, and there there was a record player, you can play records. It's amazing, the kids take up the records and they say, oh, wow, you know, that's a big CD. (laughs) (laughs) They, They have never, and then we tell them you can play the other side too. Oh wow, you know because CD you can play one side, <laughs> you know. So we we create the experience. And but the heartbeat of the whole thing is the resource center, you know. Uh, we've got thousands, I think more than ten thousand records, seventy eight, thirty three, forty fives. We have uh, magazines, books. Um, we have cassettes, videos. Our collection has grown amazingly and i think one of the treasures that we found recently i think a few months ago was a record a 78 record which was actually first recorded in 1903 one of the first recordings in this part of the world you know uh by gainsburg and uh dillnut i think it was they came to 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 southeast asia and uh they had this recorder and they recorded things and this was one of the records that was done in 1903. Wow. And for us, it's like, wow, what a treasure. Yeah. That was you recorded know? in Penang or Singapore? No, or? I, we, I don't know really where, because the recording places that they were 
they were doing recording was Penang. I think they did in Singapore, somewhere in Indonesia. They had a few places that they recorded. I've, we have not done enough research on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, prob- the, the, the challenge for me is now that I, I would like to write books and do more research, but I can't do that because we are, we are not custodians of a lot of things. It's not only about keeping something or finding something. You must know what it is. Yeah. And and for us, that is the most important. And we got like we get all excited when we find something like wow, and then it connects to another thing, and it's like wow, and you can see the connection. Oh, this is here, and that is there, and this is why this happened, and that is why that happened. We're having fun, yeah. <laughs> basically. Well, that's what I love about the the, the book that you did was that uh, it's not just. Uh the sound i mean the sound in itself you, you hear the music would be like oh that's interesting but it has to be given context it has to be given the context yeah. of the times the people's the lives that, that were being lived yeah. and, and the look you, of it you, yeah you have to celebrate not only the music the people and it's the designs it's amazing when you look at the posters that was done in the 50s 60s and 70s and you know it's like the 60s and 70s was like you know people started discovering fonts I like this font. I like this italic font. I like this colorful thing. So you look at the poster and if you look at it now, it's, it don't make sense, man. I can't read the poster. I like this picture here. I like the picture there. And they were just plastering it all over the place. Nowadays, when you do a poster and they said, okay, keep it standardized, one font. <laughs> That's it. Hmm. It's boring. But those days, it was, it was like a guitar, a musician. A musician would play... I know CFG G7, three chords. And then suddenly he realizes, oh, wow, here's a minor chord. And then here's a diminished chord. And in every song he plays, you put that chord in. You know? mm. It's just mm. like trying to fit in, but it doesn't fit. And that's what, what happened during that time. You know, if you equate it to the designs and the posters and the hairstyles and the dressing, and it's like, wow, you know, yeah. it's a whole, whole thing. It's, you know. well, well, Paul, I have, we have to wrap up now i mean i yeah, could carry on yeah. talking about this for for ages but um i, I want to thank you for for giving us the time but also i'd like to ask is the book still in print for just for the love of it yes the book is still in print we when we did the book in 2015 it sold out in two months they did a second print it sold out and it's now into the third print and you can get it off garab budaya in pj yeah and they are and, the publishers and seriously, so folks, where we, we got to. yeah, you you got to check it out, folks. It's it's a fantastic book as a piece of design, as a piece of history, um, uh, just as a lived experience. It's really great. Well, thank you yeah. so much, uh, Paul. I do hope that um, post pandemic that uh, you're able to get the museum back in the swing of things. And yeah, uh, I think we're we're planning to open next week. You know, but not every day, maybe three three times a week or something right. like that. Well, yeah. thank you so much. And, um, well, let's let's get you on again somehow. And, uh, well, uh, this has been myself, Cam Ruslan, and uh, Paul Augustine here on A Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.